Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm doing a podcast, a blueprint for a British Premier League. Now, before I get into the, the nuts and bolts of advocating for it, laying out my argument, what I want is a strong Scottish football. Because I think the British game, I think the European game, and to a lesser extent the world game benefits when there's a strong Scotland. You know, the history of ingenuity, you know, creating passing football that really in a way led to the creation of professional football. You know, management, you know talent. The some of the great team early teams, you know, the Hibs team of the fifties, the sixty seven Lisbon Lions, the seventy eight Scottish team that beat the Dutch at the World Cup. There is such a fantastic history, but at times there's always been an element of conservatism, an element of dogma, which has just held back the Scottish game from getting to the level it could have done. Now, they, they refused to go to a World Cup in the 50s. They were offered a place. England had qualified through the home nations. Scotland were offered a place. The Scottish FA said no. Said if we don't qualify through the... Home nations, we will not go at all. I mean, the Scottish captain begged the FA just to say, look, we could be one of the favourites. We have a chance of doing well. But they said no. And that sort of window of opportunity when Scotland were one of the world's best teams in the 50s. It closes. And it's still there. You, they still create great players. There's still brilliant football minds there. But... We're now entering an age of, of infrastructure. Since about the mid-80s to the current day, European football is now an infrastructure. And that, what that means is, is that 80s football is brilliant to, to read about. Because you always have these teams that seem to just sort of come out of nowhere and have periods of success. You have the, the Watford team of the 80s. That, you know, Graham Taylor takes them over. They're, they're, they're nowhere. And he builds this team up and they get to a cup final. They finish in the top three. You have a West Ham team in the mid-80s that finishes in the top three. You have the, the Dundee United team that wins at the new Camp and beats Barcelona. You have these teams that can just be... You have a charismatic manager, a couple of good signings. You know, No one gets injured that year and you can just... The, the world is your oyster and, and that's what 80s football offers. But... Part of the reason that was because the, the infrastructure of the games. All of the stadiums were crumbling. You know, the, the wages were pretty much depressed. The crowds weren't particularly big. There was an opportunity for small teams, if they made five or six brilliant decisions and things went right, for them to rise to the top. You know, the, the, re, the really big teams, your Barca's, your Reals, weren't able in the long term to dominate you know they had they were always there or thereabouts but they you know they were susceptible to mistakes to bad signings as everybody else but obviously once you get to a point where you start stadium building once you start hiring coaches expanded squads all of these little bits and pieces start to then create a haves and have nots and Scottish football has really been 
probably more affected by it than any any other major European league. So, to advocate it, really, my question is, is what do Scottish football fans want? Now, to me, I think it's a two-track answer. You, you have your, your tangible wants. You know, you want qualification for World Cups, European Championships. You want the Tartan Army going on tour, watching Scotland play and competing at that highest level of the international game. What you want is you know, Rangers, Celtic, Hibs, Hearts, Aberdeen, competitive in Europe. Because some of the great Scottish club size, Hibs of the 50s in the early you know, creations of the European Cup, the Lisbon Lions of 67, you know, Rangers in 71, even you know, the, the Rangers and Celtic teams of the early 2000s, mid 2000s that got to you know European you know the UEFA cup finals that's a, a a tangible history that's something that Scottish football can offer you know Aberdeen winning in Europe under Ferguson but there's also the intangibles you want you know, great Scottish players and great Scottish managers to carry on the great history that Scotland have always had of producing both and really what you're then asking is well can the current infrastructure and Scottish football system deliver that they haven't qualified for a, a major tournament at international level since 98 they've got to a couple of playoffs but it hasn't been competitive on their day at home at Hampden Park full house it is a very difficult place to go you know the French the Italians the, the English have all at times had bloody noses or very difficult games at Hampden Park but on the flip side of it, there's been enough poor away performances to teams that they should be beating. You know, the player pool is declining and you're no longer getting a clutch of Scotland players playing at the Premier League level in England. And the gap between the Scottish Premier League and the English Premier League has risen exponentially since the 90s. Now, you can't really go from the middle of the Scottish Premier League into the Premier League. You're really looking at League One or the Championship. It's no longer strong enough at its middle or even slightly higher up the you know, third, fourth and fifth to move from there to directly to the Premier League. It's too much of a step up. They're still great players, you know, at Celtic and Rangers and Hearts and Aberdeen. But it's becoming increasingly harder. And the players that Scotland are getting in are no longer from the lower parts of the Premier League. You're now talking upper parts of League 2, League 1, bottom parts of the Championship. And as a result, that's having a sort of manifest impact. And the problem is now, even when you do get great Scottish players coming through, young players, is that they're not able... You know, it's Richard Wright syndrome. You know, if you stay too long in the Scottish Premier League, no matter how talented you are, you will end up plattering and degrading to a bit, and it becomes that much harder when you do make the move. In other words, the classic example would be Andrew Robertson, who's doing really well at, you know, at Liverpool. But it's because he played at Hull in the Championship and in the Premier League that gave him the, you know, the talent level and the experience to go and compete at Liverpool. If he had done that at Aberdeen or Hearts or Hibs, 
I'm not so sure that he could have made that jump. Or you have to make that jump very early at sort of 17, 18. Because if you stay that much longer, it's going to have a deleterious effect on your, you know, on your upside. The, the international teams, you know, the Scotland national team, in comparison with, let's say, Northern Ireland, who have a much smaller, you know, player pool, you know, Republic of Ireland, Wales, all of them have qualified and had elements of success. You know, Wales have got through to a semi-final. Both the Republic and Northern Ireland got to the latter stages. Even though they've expanded the European Championship, Scotland still haven't, you know, become close to qualifying. You know, that they're on the outskirts of playoffs. And because of this drop in the sort of amount of Scottish players playing at the highest level, that's going to have an impact on the next generation of managers. They're going to have to start out either in the lower part of the Scottish League or the lower part of the English League, which, as we've had in previous podcasts, manifestly limits your chances to then get up to the Premier League. I mean, probably your only exception to that rule would be Alex Neil at Norwich. But even that was a risky move. It paid off, but there was always a sense, how long can he keep this up? There was always a question mark and an asterisk on him that essentially meant that he, when there was a problem, when the, when the team did have a poor runner form, he was sacked earlier than he would have done, maybe a generation earlier. Because if he said, oh, well, he's had success up in Scotland, we can trust in him in the long term. But while he was successful at the beginning at Norwich, the second that there was a bit of a, a, a poor run is that they didn't have the confidence in him. Because they're saying, well, he's only just come out of the lower part of the Scottish League, and as a result, he got sacked. And you know, the, you've had... In the 90s and early 2000s, there was a, a whole subset of good Scottish managers all throughout the Premier League and the Championship. Now that's thinning out a little bit. You're still reliant on people like Strachan, Moyes, McGee. You know, Rangers and Celtic are, have spent more time trying to find managers elsewhere. You know, Brendan Rodgers, Northern Ireland. Ronnie Delia, Norwegian, you know. You've, they've tried to get Michael O'Neill, who is Northern Irish, to become the Scottish national team manager. That's not necessarily a terrible thing. Though. I think that was a very good move, and I think it was probably a mistake on Michael O'Neill's part not to accept it. But they were still not able to find a young Scottish coach that they had the confidence in to, to give him the job. So I think you're looking at it... Scottish football still produces great players, you know, but... in. European club level, you've had a situation where this season Rangers got knocked out in the first qualifying round of the Europa League to a part-time Luxembourgian team. You know, Celtic have only qualified for the latter stages of the Champions League once, and even in that second round, they weren't particularly competitive. And in the Europa League, they struggled at the group stages, and they've yet to really make much of an impact. I mean, if you're looking at it, you know, with sort of, you'd have to say in conclusion that the moment Scottish football only really offers fragmentary success. It's not a long-term basis for success at European club level or national team level. There are real question marks over whether the young players are getting enough of an opportunity in the Scottish league 
and whether the actual standard of the Scottish League is good enough for them to make the move into the English League or to foreign leagues and to improve the player pool to improve the Scottish national team. So, what you then need to move on to is really the elephant in the room of Scottish football, which is the old firm. You know, Glasgow Celtic, Glasgow Rangers. You know, what do they really want? So, with Celtic, they want success in Europe. They want to be considered one of the bigger clubs in Europe. You know, I'm sure on a, on a latter level, they would love some you know, developed Scottish players to you know, increase that success. You know, the, the problem is, is that because of the decline of Rangers due to the, the financial meltdown, is that they haven't had a huge amount of competition. Even when they've had you know, limited managers like Ronnie Delia, who was, you know, he was a, he's a very talented Norwegian coach, but he wasn't emotionally and experienced enough and mentally ready to take on the reins at Celtic. And he found himself overmatched, but even he was winning the league and winning in the Cups fairly consistently. There's a lack of competition. I mean, as a result, you've had declining attendances at Parkhead because it's really the monotony of you know, competitive wins. You know, there isn't much competition. And so as a result, that's having an impact on them in European football. You know, they're, they're not any... You know, last year you had the 50th anniversary of Celtic Whip being the first British team to win the European Cup. The Lisbon Lions, 1967. And it was the outpouring of emotion that is still there, even 50 years afterwards, and the veneration. It's something very deep within Celtic's history and their self-identification as a club. Even for fans who were born you know, generations after 1967, still it's absolutely vital to Celtic as their understanding of themselves. But there's a sense, even reading all of the articles about it, that there was a sense that it would never happen again, that they seemed further and further away. Even a sense that they were, you know, they got through to the UEFA Cup final in 2004, they lost to Jose Mourinho's Porto. It's a fairly tight game, Celtic were brave, but they just, just finished a bit short. So this is really what they want. And it's pretty clear that Scottish football as it is currently constructed isn't really able to get them to that level of competition that their fans want. At least in the 90s and 2000s, you had a strong Rangers and it was you know, a, you know, a battle to the finish. They had a couple of seasons where both teams end up on 100 points. But now because Rangers are almost, I'd say, half a generation at least behind in terms of infrastructure, in terms of all the issues that they have, with finance, that Celtic are going to win the league pretty much for the next five years guaranteed. And they're going to win a decent amount of the cup competitions. But I don't know in the, whether they've made enough incremental improvements in European football, and I'll, I'll discuss this a bit later with regards to Brendan Rodgers and his management of the club in terms of Europe. You know, it's... If you look at them, they've... The Champions League... You've had teams, you know, Turkish teams, you've had some French teams that have made runs at it. You've had the success of Basel. There's been plenty of opportunities, even you'd have to say to a latter extent, the success of Karabakh, the Azerbaijani team, 
is that with Celtic's history with their stadium, with their infrastructure, they should have done. They should be able to compete at the European level better than they are at the moment. Some of it is Brendan Rodgers' fault. I think when they've come up against Paris Saint Germain, when they've come up against Barcelona, he because they're dominant and they're winning virtually every single week and they're playing brilliant football, better football than they did under Delia. There's the sense that we'll just play our normal game, but you can't. There's so much of a gap between PSG and Barcelona that if you play like that, you're on an absolute hiding to nothing. It is Brendan's folly. It is charge of the light brigade. They've been they've lost by sevens. They've lost by eights. They've been ritualistically annihilated, and it, there's just no you, you don't get anything out of it. All it is, is you're just basically, it's just a failed form of romanticism. It's like, it doesn't matter, we'll just play our natural game. It's never going to work. What you need to find is a way to somehow get results, or even to limit the damage against these teams, so that you can try and finish third, or finish second, or something that you can build on for a future whereby Celtic aren't just there to essentially nick the odd point off of teams at you know, Celtic Park on a midweek night when it's cold and the crowd are up for it. For example, the 3-0 three, three draw with Man City at Parkhead last year wasn't a, a seminal result. It was just they caught Man City on a bad day and that was a slightly flawed Man City team. They'd won a lot of games and people hadn't really noticed the flaws. But they got that 3-0 draw... But it didn't kick on. It hasn't manifestly improved their European performances after that. It comes more and more with each passing European result as if it was just an, you know, a cup upset more than a platform for them to improve. The interesting thing is the next game that Man City played was away at Spurs. Spurs won that game 2-0. That was Man City's first defeat of the season. Spurs kicked on. They finished second in the Premier League. You know, they... You know, competed for the title. Man City, you know, in the end, had to accept just finishing in the top four. You know, they, which then has led on to Spurs in last year in the Champions League, didn't get out of the group stage. Made some poor performances this year in a manifestly better European group. They finished top. They beat Real Madrid. They beat Dortmund. They got results away from home. They've then kicked on in the Champions League. They're now in the group. Yeah, they're in the second stage of the Champions League. And they're playing Juventus. That's the team Celtic played a few years ago under Gordon the Tracken. But Tottenham have a better chance of winning that game than Celtic did. You know, it, to an extent, as much as I admire the football that Celtic have played under Brendan Rodgers and the success, they've only literally lost one league game since he's pitched up there. It's it's a sweat of you know, sweater vest paradox. It's interior designing over structural works. Yeah, you know, the beautiful football, the the domestic dominance, on the surface, you know, repudiates you know you know what Ronnie Delia did and shows his weaknesses, but it's just beautiful wallpaper over a damp and rotten wall. It just covers it. Eventually, the fact that Brendan Rodgers hasn't seemingly got them any better or any further along in Europe. Yeah, you know, basically Delia said. You know, showed that even if you've got a young, intelligent, you know, forward-thinking coach, that still wouldn't solve the infrastructure problems in Scottish football. 
yes, Brendan Rodgers has more experience and has got more out of, you know, at a domestic level, but he's still not able. He is a talented coach, relatively speaking, but even he hasn't got them f- that much further in Europe. This is why their you know, Europa League game you know, is absolutely key. If they don't win that, then the last three or four years have, have really done nothing. Now that then leads on to, to Rangers. You know, the problem is, is that, that they, financially speaking, are not independent. You know, they're, they're years behind Celtic in terms of infrastructure and money. They are rebuilding. And they're still trying to get... You know, they've basically got rid of Mike Ashley, but you've now got Dave King. And you've got just tremendous you know, financial issues and question marks. And the path back to parity with Celtic just seems very, very difficult. You know, it's very hard to see how a, the next great Rangers team can come. It would have to be a series of brilliant youth team, you know, you'd have to have a great crop. You'd have to have a Scottish version of the class of 92. You'd have to, every one of your signings would have to work. You'd have to find some kind of visionary manager that's willing to take on some of the pressures and the extreme pressures that the Rangers job has, especially when you're that far behind Celtic, when you don't have the money that Celtic at least get from European football and you don't, and that the chaos behind the scenes at the highest level and the, the structures of it. You know, whether they can re-establish them at home and abroad with the head start that, that Celtic have is very difficult. So, Really, the, the underlying question is is that what has caused this in the first place? And this is really what comes back to the, the, the idea of the age of infrastructure. Now, in 1985, you, know, you had a, a fantastically brilliant Aberdeen team led by you know, Alex Ferguson. You had the Dundee United team that had some success under Jim McLean in Europe. You, know, you had Rangers and Celtic there or thereabouts, but they weren't dominant. Scottish football was at a very healthy period. They'd had sort of five, six, seven, eight, ten years of you know regular success in Europe. It was a tough going to Scotland was a tough place. You had very talented players, hard work ethic, you know, difficult, tight grounds to go to. Sometimes poor weather conditions, especially you know in winter, early springtime, and very passionate crowds. It was a very difficult place to go to, and they gave teams bloody noses. You know, big European teams. But, as we've said, slowly but surely at the top level of European football, that's changed. Um, you know, Ferguson departing to Manchester United, the soft decline of the Dundee United team. What's happened is, is that you've had, you know, like I've said earlier, you know, the banning of Europe, you know, you've had the banning of European teams, sorry, banning of English teams from Europe after Heysel. So the then Scottish teams, especially Rangers and Celtic, were able to attract English talent because they were able to offer European football. You had the Taylor Report, so which then means that all seater stadiums, which then basically gave Rangers and Celtic with Parkhead and Ibrox respectively a huge advantage. You know, more TV money, foreign players, you know, brand name managers, for example, you know, Graham Souness. You know, increased transfer budget, wages, you know, youth academies becoming more important. And they all benefited Rangers and Celtic. You know, 
proactive ownership of both Rangers and Celtic, the desire to dominate Scottish football. But what's happened is, is that you then have the unintended consequences. In the end, Scottish football becomes bipolar. It's Rangers and Celtic completely dominating the media outlook, you know, the fans. It becomes basically the footballing equivalent. Footballing, it became a footballing Cold War. And it was really, you know, the Kennan doctrine. It was matching moves. If Rangers bought a few great English players, Celtic would have to buy a few great English players. If Rangers brought a foreign player, Celtic brought a foreign player. If Rangers under Walter Smith had a huge amount of success, won you know, nine, ten leagues in a row, then Celtic would have to go out and buy some great players, get some great managers in from England to then compete and dominate themselves. But in the end, what's happened is, as an unintended consequence, that has weakened Scottish football in terms of the league structure, in terms of the youth development, because they were in a death struggle. You know, what, you, you know Rangers couldn't sit there and say, well, we're going to step, you know, step back for a couple of seasons and develop some great Scottish players who we then think are going to be able to compete with Celtic. The fans wouldn't allow them to do so. So in the end, you ended up with you know, very solid European pros in the old firm game, but there wasn't the room for young Scottish players to develop. I mean, it's, the age of infrastructure, it's a little bit similar to the situation in Spain, whereby in the 80s, Real and Barca weren't dominant. You know, they had some periods where they weren't playing much European football, where they weren't competitive at European club level in the same way that they had been in the 50s and 60s. But then they rose to prominence in the 90s and 2000s. And now suddenly, you know, Spanish football, really, you only have Barca, Real, you, you know, to an extent, Atletico Madrid. Obviously, around about the 2000s, you, you had the Valencia teams, you had a couple of Deportivo teams. But now Deportivo and to an extent Valencia aren't able to, to compete at that highest level in terms of league titles. You know, the age of infrastructure has really affected Scotland more than most other leagues because the financial dominance that Rangers and Celtic have has now affected the pitch. You know, it shows onto the pitch every time you watch Scottish football. <laughs> what you then have to say is, OK, we've done this audit of Scottish football. We've understood that Rangers and Celtic have competitive issues in terms of European football and they're, they're struggling in a way. You know, Rangers are struggling to compete with Celtic. Celtic are struggling to compete because domestically they don't have the competition to be able to then compete in Europe. Well, well what's this got to do with the English Premier League? Well, effectively, the English Premier League is going through a second age of infrastructure. So, by that, I mean that Historically, English football, you know, post-war English football has had a big five or six. You'd have to say that, if you had to say the permanent members of that, Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool and Tottenham. If you had four you know, permanent members, a bit like the UN Security Council, those are the four teams over the, since the post-war have had the longest runs of success in Europe, at home, in terms of the size of the stadium, in terms of the footprint in domestically, nationally, and to an extent, to the world. You'd have to say that the associate members, Everton. If you had, if you had to make five permanent members, you'd have to say, you know, Everton would be the fifth, and then your associate members, Villa, 
Leeds, Man City, and Chelsea. Other teams have had success, but over if you, if you took the whole post-war period. Now, with Chelsea, you'd have to say that they are now permanent members of the you know, top six. And they have been pretty much since the late 90s. I mean, currently, your big six would be Man City, United, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal, and Spurs. But what the... With your big five or six, the differences in the post-war English football was there was always matched with periods of geographical success. So the Midlands in the in the early 70s to the early 80s, you had Derby. They came up from the second division under Brian Clough, won the league, got to the European Cup semi-final. Eventually, Clough ends up at Forest, wins back-to-back European Cups, you know, won the league, won a few league cups. And you had Villa, won the... You know, league and won the European Cup in the early 80s so although you wouldn't say that any one of those outfits over a 40-50 year period were one of the best English teams or one of the top level ones they had a period of sustained success you know Merseyside in the mid 80s when you know you had an Everton Liverpool Cup final when it was Everton won the league Liverpool and a couple of times Everton finished second or third Manchester in the late 60s so you had Manchester United winning the league, then won the European Cup. That year, Man City won the league. Now, even in, you know, you'd say the mid-90s, you had the North East and Lancashire. You had Blackburn and Newcastle were the teams competing on a regular basis with Alex Ferguson's Manchester United teams. You don't really have that today. You see, when I was talking about you know, post-war football, you had several associate members. So you had the Leeds team that got to a European Cup final. They had the success under Don Revy, won the league a couple of times, won cups. You know, Man City had some success. Chelsea had some success in the 60s and early 70s. You know, Villa have had you know, success you know, at varying time points in, from, in the post-war years. But now if you had to say, well, who's the associate members? Well, you'd say Everton. Then, then you're talking about, well, West Ham maybe? Leicester? They're not convincing. You know, you'd have to say with West Ham, they've spent, they're, they've been yo-yoing. You know, Leicester a couple of years, spent a few years in League One, you know, and spent a few more years in the Championship. You know, this has only been, even two, three years ago, they were just struggling to stay in the Premier League. You know, Newcastle at the moment have had years in the championship and are at the moment desperately hoping to stay in the Premier League before they can then, you know, before Mike Ashley can sell the club. You know, you even what you've had is is that with the strengthening of the top six, you know, with the gap that now exists really between six and everybody else, you know, Everton are that seventh team. You've had the strange decline of intermediate clubs. You've had geographical weaknesses. So the Northeast, you know, when the Northeast is strong, you have a good Middlesbrough team that got to a European, you know, the UEFA Cup final. They got to FA Cup finals. They got to League Cup finals. Won the League Cup. You, know, you had Sunderland that finished seventh twice. You've had Newcastle that you know, qualified for Europe, got to a UEFA Cup quarter final. Under Pardew, has some success in the Champions League in the late 90s. Now, you know, Middlesbrough have only had one year in the Premier League. They spent lots of years in the Championship. Sunderland look like they're heading towards League One. 
and have, you know, for the last three, four, five years of their Premier League time, were just surviving with ever increasing debts. You know, you've had Leeds financial meltdown. They've spent time in League One. They haven't been back in the Premiership for ten, fifteen years. Derby have been ten years out of the Premier League. Villa have been out of the Premier League. You know, Forest have spent a generation out of the Premier League. All of these intermediate clubs, clubs that have had success in Europe, clubs that have had success you know, winning trophies, historically relatively big clubs, clubs that have at times been associate members of the big five and six and have been there or thereabouts, have always been sort of putting pressure on it. They're now rebuilding. They are you know, ever increasingly getting behind in terms of trying to compete with the top six. So what you've now got is, well, what's replaced them? You know, really, you've now got to a situation where you've got, well, well-run smaller clubs. You've got the likes of Burnley and Bournemouth. They are the just-happy-to-be-here club. They're trying to solidify themselves as regulars in the Premier League. They're trying to follow the, the sort of Stoke, West Brom. West Bromwich Abbott. They're trying to basically match that. They're trying to get their stadiums, their training grounds, their youth structure. They're trying to get them to the point where they can now safely say, we are Premier League regulars. You know, because each year you're in the Premier League, the money keeps on coming in. But as a result, in terms of the size of their stadiums, in terms of their historical footprints, they are just not able to even think about competing. The problem is, is that your intermediate clubs are struggling because it, there's only two ways of doing it. It's top six or bust because you're spending huge amounts of money to compete. Because literally in terms of turnover, in terms of stadium size, in terms of you know, how many times they're on TV, the top six are becoming hugely strong. And each year you're not in the top six, the gap widens. You know, look at what happened. Leeds tried to compete for a few years in the late 90s, early 2000s. Nearly, you know, the club nearly went out of existence. Villa under Martin O'Neill got very close. A few times in the top six, they nearly got through into Europe. But the problem is, is that you either go fully for the top six, you know, where you can have a year a little bit like Everton under Martinez, where they finished fifth, nearly knocked out Arsenal in terms of trying to get into the top four. Or you end up with the sort of Europa League conundrum, where you, you do just well enough to qualify for Europe, but we all know the, the eternal slog that is the Europa League. And you've got, the, you've got the conundrum. Do you tank the Europa League to solidify your league position so that you can keep your best players and try and compete for the Champions League? Or do you go all out to try and you know, get to the final of the Europa League, a bit like Fulham did in 2010, so that you've got that glory, that you've won something in Europe, and that will allow you to keep your best players and to attract better players and then have a crack at the Champions League. Very few teams have been able to do that. You know, Fulham, a couple of years later, relegated, and they haven't you know, come close. They've only just recently got to the stage where they're competing to get into the playoffs. At times, they were more closer than going back to League One. You know, really, the only outfit that has been able to manifestly rejoin the top six has been Spurs. But as we've discussed, historically, in the post-war years, they've always been there or thereabouts. The only sort of real period of downturn they had was in the mid-90s and early 2000s. 
but by the time you got to 2005, Martin Yell took them to within you know, a couple of points of finishing in the top four. And at that point, because of the size of the historical footprint of the club, it was quite easy for them, because of the ownership they had, to re-establish themselves and keep there or thereabouts. And even that has been a struggle. They've had more years playing the Europa League and having that conundrum and losing their best players. So you're talking about Bale, Carrick, Berbatov. Then it has, it's been a struggle for them. And even now, even after two years in a row of qualifying for the Champions League, two years in a row of competing for the league, there's still question marks over whether they can keep Ali, whether they can keep Kane, Eriksen, you know, Alderweireld. I mean, you're, you're, it's a lot easier to be a just happy to be there, keeping in mid-table and not trying to go all out to compete for the top six, eight. You know, in effect, the, you know, the Mike Ashley point is it's actually cheaper to keep your money, keep your powder, do just enough, don't, don't even bother about the cups and stay in the Premier League and keep that money coming in than it is to try and go for it, whereby if you fail, you could end up in massive amounts of debt and back into the championship, which is an absolute shark tank in terms of trying to get back into the Premier League. You know, the thing is, the, the real case study is, is that look at the better teams, the teams in and around who are trying to compete into the top six. You know, look at Everton. You know, they've, the closest they got was fifth under Martinez. They had to basically focus entirely on the league. You know, that was 38 games, a little bit like when Leicester won the league. Literally, their emphasis was 38 games. They didn't have any injuries. Everything went well. They finished, you know, they won the league. You know, the problem is, look at Martinez. They finished fifth next year. Europa League ground them down, finished mid-table. Europa League run wasn't good enough to cover for it, and eventually he sacked. Look at West Ham. They've tried a couple of times to qualify for Europe, and they've you know failed in terms of getting through the Intertoto Cup. Southampton, they've had a couple of you know finals where they've lost, but they've got into Europe, and they didn't get out of a relatively straightforward Europa League group. West Ham haven't had much European success when they got lost their cup final, end up in the Europa League. They end up losing to a second-string Palermo team. It's you know the poor showings in Europe mean that they can't do what Seville do. Seville do. They can't say, oh well, you know what, we can't compete with Real, Barca, but we can qualify on a regular basis for the Europa League. That's a tournament that with our you know, strengths, we can win, and we can win it on a regular basis. So really, who's going to compete in? the top six Everton you know your pros they've got a good youth system relatively big spending owner that's just come in they've got a good history and a new stadium on the way the cons limited European success you know they lost to Villarreal in the Champions League play the one time they qualified I mean they were unlucky in the sense that Villarreal were a great team and it got to the semi-finals but at the same time they still haven't ever been in the group stage of the Champions League which will have an impact in terms of how many players that you can get and in terms of the, the money. You know, they have a limited national and global footprint. The stadium is years away, at which point that's still, you mean you have to pay for that stadium and in the years that they're going to be at Goodison Park where they don't get anywhere near the same amount of money that Liverpool get from Anfield every single time that Liverpool play at home because they're a bigger stadium, more money and let's face it, Everton are in the shadow of Liverpool. 
and the history that Liverpool have had and the global, you know, the global support that Liverpool have. Their challenge is trying to finish in the top six and or trying to establish themselves as an English equivalent of Seville, which is very difficult because the top six, by their very nature, will take virtually all of the you know, European spots. You know, it's only on the off chance that both the top six win the cups that then make seventh. And even that is the, you know, you have to go, you have to start your season in July, August, which will then have an impact on your ability to compete in the league compared with the tiring, you know, schedule that the Europa League has. I mean, look at the amount of money they spent this season to try and, you know, they, they've sold their best player in Lukaku and they spent a huge amount of money. They've had to sack their manager. Some of those players, you know, they've already had to loan back, you know, Sandro. You know, they spent, the, you know, 25, 30 million on David Klassen. It doesn't work. They spent a huge amount of money on Sigurdsson. And they're still, essentially, a mid-table team with more problems than positives. It's a mismatched squad. And they're not particularly convinced that Sam Allardyce has the ability or the charisma or the style of football to get them competing with the top six okay you say West Ham well you know big stadium London location huge average attendance we're talking about 56 57,000 and ambitious owners but well, what what are the cons they're not an established Premier League team they're yo-yoing more often than not in the last three or four years outside the one season their last season at Upton Park where they you know competed for the top six seven eighth under Billich they have spent more years trying to keep in the Premier League. You know, the stadium is an albatross. You've got the whole problems with the... You can't increase the capacity. There's not an awful lot you can do with it. You have the sightline issues. And the fact is that to get the 56,000 people in, their ticket prices are particularly low. And that's fantastic. I, I'm not criticising that. But in terms of, you know, because they're a London team and you are competing with Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea who have bigger stadiums and who get more money out of that stadium. You know, the owners don't quite have the financial muscle that the other big London clubs have and Man City and United. You know, they don't have a European footprint. They don't have regular trophies. That's one of the hardest things. That's one of the, th that's one of the <coughs> key elements of what has allowed Spurs to come back from their sort of 90s nadir is that they still had in their organisation the history of winning cups, qualifying for Europe, which then acts as a way of getting players. In other words, they were able to get players like Berbatov, who'd been on the bench of a European Cup final with Leverkusen. They had managed to get Luka Modric, who was one of the highest ranked players in European football for his age group, and were able to sign him. You know, they were able to buy players like you know Defoe, Carrick, Canute from West Ham. You know, they still ha you know, and they were even in the mid nineties they were able to sign players like Jurgen Klinsmann. It's that kind of level that teams like West Ham and Southampton just don't have that same ability. The classic example is when Spurs bought Raphael van der Vaart for about nine million pounds, about eight, nine million pounds from Real Madrid. Brilliant player, played at the highest level, fantastic at international level. Same year, Bolton, who'd been in the Premier League for a few years, 
they broke their transfer record. They spent two million pounds more, actually two and a half million pounds more, on Johan Elmander. He ended up. He was a decent player, but he was nowhere near the level of Van der Vaart. And as a result, Tottenham were able to kick on in the Champions League. A few years later, Bolton were out of the league and ended up going down into League One with huge sort of Sunderland-esque depths. You know, even Leicester. You know, the point is, is that they they had this amazing year where everything went right. They won. You know, they got to the you know quarterfinals of the Champions League. But even then, they're still you know they end up having to sack Shakespeare because they were a little bit worried about whether you know they would be able to fall into the relegation battle. You know, they've lost Kante, they've lost Drinkwater, and they've not really been able to establish themselves as a top eight club. You know, the point was is that they had this great run in Europe, but that they didn't end up qualifying for the Europa League. You know, they they've. They haven't quite built on that Premier League win. They're, what you'd have to say about Leicester now is, is that you know, they've still got owners that want to spend some money. They've got a good fan base. But the stadium isn't going to get you know, much bigger. You know, eventually, Mahrez will leave and Vardy will end up you know, in a two, three years in his decline phase. At which point then is how can you possibly build on that to then kick on to that next level? Or will it just become less as a regular Premier League team who had this amazing year that just become that just in the end becomes in of itself just one brilliant year rather than the starting point of a period of sustained success. So in other words, they become more like a Hellas Verona for when they won the Serie A in the mid eighties. Just a brilliant, wonderful success, but it was a one-off. Whereby, if you say with Forest. They had their fantastic you know, league win when they you know, came up under Brian Clough. They then kicked on and won a couple of European Cups. And then they had a period of time in the top six, winning league Cups, getting to Cup finals and having success. I get the feeling it's going to be a lot closer to a one-off sort of Hellas Verona situation than I do a you know, Clough and at Nottingham Forest. So really... This asks the key question, well, what do you need to compete in the big six? Well, you know, compete with the big six. Large stadium, passionate local fan base, with a national and a global footprint, a fan base that demands success, room to grow larger, financially, economically and infrastructurally, a history of winning domestically and in Europe, a large zone of influence and a catchment range for youth system development, Ability to attract foreign players and improve young, unheralded talent into top-level Premier League players. You know, a large media market where they have the dominant footprint. Well, that sounds to me like Rangers and Celtic, to be completely honest with you. Celtic, you look at Fraser Forster, Victor Wanyama, Virgil van Dijk, Henrik Larsson. With Rangers, you had Mikel Arteta, Giovanni van Bronckhorst, Gino Gattuso. That there are benefits to the Premier League. You know, Celtic and Rangers have that heft and the ability to ha- compete with them. They have the infrastructure. Now, Rangers are massively behind, and I accept that, but if you then put them into the English Football League and got them into the Premier League, they become that much more viable for someone, a foreign ownership, to take them over. And to put that money in 
to the club that can allow it to fulfil its potential. It has potential, much in the same way that Newcastle has potential. The point is, I think that Rangers, if you if you've got them into the Premier League, I think there's it's it's a more attractive proposition than someone like Newcastle, where I think that there are a lot of I think Newcastle have reached pretty much their apex potential. I don't think they're going to get that much bigger. I think on yeah, if they have a good manager, some good youth players, and a couple of good signings, yeah, they can compete. You know, they can finish. You know, top six, top seven, top eight. But I'm not sure whether they can compete in Europe. However, I think with Rangers, I think there is more. I think they have a higher ceiling, and with Celtic, absolutely. You know, the point is, is that. We know that there would be benefits from Rangers and Celtic for them moving into the Premier League. For it to actually happen, what you need is it has to be something in it for the Premier League. So really, for them, it would be the more competition for the top six, increased television audience, you know, a potentially better UEFA coefficient because a team like Rangers and Celtic would be able to compete in the Europa League without necessarily having to worry too much about you know, uh, impacting their league form because I think they're big enough and I think they have the history and the expectation and use of playing European football every single year. It, it becomes an interesting media and marketing narrative to it. You know, the benefits for the old firm are pretty clear. You have a huge amount of television revenue, global exposure, you know, a better chance at European football, you know, better level of competition. And I think they would become more viable globally as a result of being part of the Premier League. And I think there are benefits for the SBR and I think there are benefits for Scottish football. You know, you'd have... What it comes down to is this. Is ask yourself if you're Aberdeen, Hearts, Hibs, Dundee. Do you want the status quo where basically you enjoy beating Rangers and Celtic periodically? Maybe once every five years at home, maybe once every ten years away. You know, sometimes you beat them in the cup. But you're not com- able to compete with them on any given level at, at a league basis. But you get the gate money from playing them. You get the prestige. It's the history of it. Or would you rather a situation where Rangers and Celtics' first teams were playing in England and you actually have the chance to win the league, properly win the league? and get into the Champions League, and to grow your club, and to be able to try and start recreating those days of the 60s, 70s and 80s, when Scottish teams could you know, do a shock in European football, and could were difficult places to go. See, my, my solution in terms of getting Rangers and Celtic into the English Premier League would be to offer them this. They enter at League One. They wouldn't be allowed to play in the English Cup or the English League Cup. Their first team would still have to play in the Scottish League Cup and Scottish FA Cup. So what you're getting is is that you're still having the trickle-down effect. So if you're Air, if you're Queen's Park, if you get Celtic and Rangers in the Cup, you're still seeing their first team, they're still playing, they're still able to you know win at Hamden. So you've still got Rangers and Celtic first team having a footprint in the Scottish game. Now in the SPL I'd have Rangers and Celtic able to play an under 23 team. So basically their youth team 
and you, I'd allow them two pro, two or three pros over age with a wage limit. So in other words, they would be competitive, but they wouldn't be dominant. So you basically have a situation where Rangers and Celtic would be playing in the Scottish Premier League with young Scottish players and presumably young Scottish youth managers, and you're giving exposure to that level of Scottish players, and what you'd allow them to do in the transfer window in the summer would be to move, let's say they have a kid, 21, scores 20 goals before January, you could then move him up into the Premier League squad, and he would then be able to play in the Premier League, but not in the Scottish League. So it's that kind of compromise. So you're basically giving Rangers and Celtic a challenge. You're not just giving... just you know, crafting them onto the Premier League, they're going to have to earn it by playing League One Championship, which isn't easy, but you'd expect for clubs of that size, Celtic probably a little bit easier than Rangers, and whereby maybe 10, 15 years ago, Rangers would have turned their nose a bit, they've done it. They've been to the you know back end of the Scottish Leagues and had to work their way up, and I think you know going to League One, it's a new challenge, but it's also a way where they wouldn't necessarily have to constantly worry about Celtic. In other words, they'd just be competing to get into the playoffs, to win. And so what you would then do by that is is that you'd be recasting the SPL. It's a place to develop Scottish players and manage the next generation. And you're improving the, the national team player pool because you're getting more Scottish youngsters playing regular football and developing. And what happens is, is that when those you know, Rangers and Celtic players get to age 23, either they go to the big club or they leave. But then they're either going to other Scottish teams or they're going into the English league system or even abroad. So you, you, Scotland are starting to export players rather than just constantly importing you know, cheap foreign players. You've, the old firm would still be there. But they're limited in scope. They can't. They wouldn't be able to win the league every single year, and you know the under twenty three Rangers and Celtic team wouldn't be able to you know play in Europe. The thing is, the so for the Rangers and Celtic, you'd have to qualify for Europe through the league, which I think you know gives it a challenge. Now Rangers and Celtic might say, well, we why would we give up regular European football for the off chance of qualifying? Well, it's the Leicester City argument. Look at it this way. You know, Celtic have only in recent years got into the latter stage of the Champions League once, immediately got knocked out by Juventus. Now, Leicester City, who a couple of years previously had been in League One, been in the Championship, year before that, had been fighting for their lives to stay in the, the Premier League, got into the Champions League, got to the quarterfinals on their first go. Now, Obviously, Celtic are a much bigger club in terms of scope, in terms of history, in terms of reach, than Leicester City. So, in other words, the real question is, and this is the same goes for Rangers as well, is that if you've had a situation where Chelsea have won the Champions League, finishing sixth in the Premier League, if you've had Tottenham on the first go in the Champions League, get to the quarterfinals, what is, you know, what is Celtic's limit in that case? Because if you're good enough to qualify in the top four... From, from England into the Champions League, you have a chance of winning it. Man City have got to a semi-final. Man United have won it and got to finals. Liverpool have won it. Chelsea have won it. Tottenham have got to quarterfinals. So have Leicester. That is a huge opportunity to really recreate you know, the Lisbon Lions. You know, to be the next generation. To be that next great Celtic team or Rangers team that actually gets to the upper end of it. 
to recreate what it was when Rangers got through to the European, you know, the UEFA Cup final when Celtic did, to really build on that and to give an actual pipeline for young Scottish players to get into the Premier League and to improve their skill so that it improves the national team. So that you've got a situation where when Scotland play England, it's not David versus Goliath, it's actually you know two well-matched teams, which is what it's like when it's England play Wales at the moment. England are slightly stronger in terms of their depth, but you know, you've got Aaron Ramsey, you've got Gareth Bale, you have to respect their level of talent. And the Premier League gets the competitive balance. You know, you get a British Premier League. You know, it's interesting. It's I think one of the I read this fantastic article earlier in the week about the Texaco Cup whereby you had some of the best teams in Scotland, some of the better teams in England that hadn't qualified for Europe, and they played against each other. And there was huge interest in Scotland in terms of the attendance. And there was a time when Motherwell knocked out Spurs. There were some upsets and some great games. And I think that that's something that Rangers and Celtic being in the Premier League could offer the Scottish audience, while also strengthening their domestic system and their infrastructure and giving them a real possibility to actually kick on but there's also the element of choice in other words there are probably people that would be monstrously angry like Scottish domestic fans at the thought of Rangers and Celtic abandoning the Scottish league to take the money in England but this is my point is that a lot of football administrators are always scared about the possibility of you know well what would the fans think well you give them a choice. In other words, you know, you say there's always people complaining about ticket prices and opportunities and youngsters getting to watch football. Well, if you disagree with Rangers and Celtic playing in England, you'd have the Rangers and Celtic, you know, under 23 teams playing at Ibrox and Celtic Park. You could go there and obviously the ticket prices would be a lot lower. You're talking maybe five, ten pounds entry. In other words, it would be there, you'd be playing, it'd be Rangers versus Hearts, Celtic versus Hibs, and it would still be Scottish football, and it'd be young Scottish players. If people didn't turn up to those games, it's because they've made a choice. If they'd rather sit there and wait till the next week when it's, you know, Liverpool versus Celtic, or Rangers versus Man City, but that's given people the choice, and the, the opportunities. And what you're trying to do is to create a world in which a footballing world, a footballing world where the Premier League isn't a closed shop, where it is more competitive, where you're actually trying to get a situation where you have Scottish football strong because then you create better managed Scottish managers. You know, you give an opportunity for English players to go to Scotland, Scotland young Scottish players to come to England, and to really build something that has positives for all British football. Thank you.